The text for our sermon this morning, Job chapter 23, verses 6 through 10. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. This time we'll call the children forward for the children's sermon. All right, in the verses that we just read, Job teaches us three important things about Jesus. First of all, Jesus is God, but Jesus is also man. He is God and man in one person. Now, this is a miracle and it is a mystery, but the Bible teaches it, so we believe it. Now, God is present in all places. Like right now, God is here with us, but He is also with Christians who are meeting to worship Him now in Texas or Montana or Florida. We have a special word for this. It was in our creed or in our reading earlier. We say that God is omnipresent. Omni means all or everything. So when we say that God is omnipresent, we mean that God is present everywhere. Now, man is not omnipresent. You can only be in one place at one time. So we might wonder, how can Jesus be with us as he promised if he went back to heaven after he rose from the dead? Well, because he is God and man, we understand how it is possible. His human nature is in heaven and will stay there until he comes back to judge the world. But his divine nature is omnipresent. And this is true of Jesus and was always true of Jesus, not just since he went back to heaven. Secondly, though, Job says, I go forward, I go backward, I go to the left, I go to the right, but I cannot see God. But he also says, He works on the left hand, and he turns to the right. So Job understands that God is everywhere, even though he cannot see him. Job also teaches us that Jesus stands up for us. Imagine that a window at school got broken, knocked out by a rock, and somebody said, Aiden broke that window. You're afraid because you think you're going to get in trouble, even though you didn't do it. But then a teacher stands up for you and says, nah, he didn't do it. I was there. I saw the whole thing. That feels good, doesn't it? Well, Jesus stands up for us, but in a much bigger way. He takes the responsibility for our sins on himself. He says, I'll take the blame for what my children did. Punish me. And that's why Job says, I would be delivered from my judge. Imagine that you did throw the rock and break the window. And somebody else says, look it, I'll take the blame. Whatever needs to be done to fix this, I'll do it. So you won't be in trouble because the blame for your sin and the penalty for it was taken by somebody else. That's what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. And thirdly, the Bible teaches us that Jesus went back to heaven after he rose from the dead. And he didn't go back there to take a nap or to retire. The same work that he did as our Savior here on earth, he's still doing there. He still teaches us God's will. And he does that through the preaching of his Bible. 
He sends preachers and teachers to his church to read the Bible and to explain it. And by these ministers, Jesus is still teaching us God's will. When Jesus was on earth, he prayed for his people. He still does that in heaven. He shows his sacrifice to God and says, Father, forgive them because I paid for their sins. Here are the scars on my hands and feet and side and back as proof that I died for their sins. And God forgives us because Jesus asks for it. Jesus also rules over us from heaven. He defeats all his enemies and all those who fight against his church. Some of these enemies are the evil, sinful world. The world hates God and hates God's children. But another enemy that Jesus defeats is our own sinful heart. He sends His Spirit to make us God's children and to put His love in our hearts. So Job says, when He has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. When people find gold in the ground called ore, right? And it's covered with rock or mixed with rock. And they get the gold out of it by heating it in a great big oven. And that oven burns so hot that it melts the gold so they can separate it from the rock and the dirt. The gold is heated and melted again and again and again to get rid of all the dirt to make it pure gold. The more it's tested, the more it's worth. Jesus rules in heaven over everything. And He brings all sorts of things into our lives to test us. Job's great trial is an example. Jesus tests us. Just like gold is put into a hot oven to burn away all the dirt, Jesus puts us into difficult situations to burn away all the sin and to make us more holy like Him. Jesus is in heaven. We can't see Him, but we can see what He's doing. After we pray, you can return to your seat. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Our subject this morning is Christ's ascension. My plan this morning is to focus mainly on question 49 of the Catechism, however, Question 49 cannot properly be understood or explained without the contents of the previous three questions. And so in order to do justice to the subject, we have to wade through some rather deep waters. Question 49 addresses the practical effects for the church of Christ's bodily ascension. You'll notice, of course, the plural pronoun again, us. What does it profit us? But these practical effects cannot actually be true unless all the preceding doctrine is true, right? Like, what does it mean to say, well, you can get to work safely now that you have a reliable vehicle, when it's not been established that you have a reliable vehicle or that you even have a job? What does it mean to say that Jesus, the God-man, is ascended into heaven for us if we haven't established that His two natures are not thereby separated, How can He save us if it turns out that He isn't really divine? These four questions are a classic example of how all the Bible's doctrines are interconnected, like a chain. And if you tamper with it at any point, you break one of the links. And a chain with a broken link is worthless. 
The integrity of the Christian faith stands or falls with the integrity of each link of the chain because truth is one. If you introduce fracture anywhere along the line, the whole thing collapses. Scripture knows nothing of non-essential doctrines. Now, the Catechism anticipates some very devious objections, and the objections run like this. A, how can Christ keep His promise to be with us to the end of the world if He's not on earth? And B, doesn't the ascension then divide His two natures? How can two united natures exist in different locations? Doesn't that disprove the doctrine that Christ is one person who subsists in two natures? And if the ascension separated those two natures, how could they have ever actually really been united? Now, just a reminder, the technical term for this union of two natures is the hypostatic union. It comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which means person. So if I use that term, I'm not trying to wow anybody with $64,000 words. It's just a way to save time. I'm sure farmers have technical terms that are not invented to wow urbanites. They just help you say more in fewer words. The objections are intended to do a couple things. One, they deny that Jesus is God. And secondly, they attack the doctrine of salvation by grace. You see, if Jesus is a mere man, and as a mere man, he kept God's law perfectly, then salvation is by works, not by grace. If he could do it, then any other man could do it too. Now, just a heads up, these doctrines will come up again. The catechism is laying the foundation because the issue of Christ's presence has bearing on other doctrines, particularly the supper. The hypostatic union bears upon the doctrine of the supper as well because truth is one. And so the catechism puts three things in place as the lead up to question 49. The foundation laid is the following. A, Christ really, truly did bodily ascend into heaven. Right in front of his disciples, Christ ascended into heaven where he will remain on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. B, this in no way contradicts his promise to be with us to the end of the world. He is one person in two natures. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divine nature, he is never absent from us. And C, this distinction does not deny the union of the two natures, because God is omnipotent. And therefore, it cannot be otherwise than that His divine nature is omnipotent, even while omnipotence is not an attribute of human nature. Nevertheless, Christ's divine nature remains eternally united and personally united to His human nature. I'd be willing to bet that most people would never imagine any relationship existing between the hypostatic union and the ascension. But our catechism is doctrinally precise. These things stand or fall together because truth is one. If Christ's natures are separable, then there's no guarantee that he ascended as the God-man. Perhaps the ascension severed the union of the nature so that now there's a human man in heaven named Jesus of Nazareth, but he isn't God. And in that case, our salvation goes out the window. There's no hope that we will rise from the dead. There's no hope that we will join him in heaven. Our salvation hinges on the reality of the hypostatic union. 
More importantly, that the union of these two natures is personal, eternal, and inseparable. Truth is one. Deny the deity of Christ, the Christian faith falls apart. Deny the humanity of Christ, the Christian faith falls apart. Deny His bodily resurrection as the same God-man who died, the Christian faith falls apart. Deny His bodily ascension as the same God-man who died and rose again, and the Christian faith falls apart. Now that we have all that stated, we can come to question 49 of the Catechism and to our outline. Number one, advocate. Number two, head. And number three, earnest. As advocate number one, you'll notice in our text that Job understands the omnipresence of God. That's the central and big background issue to question 49. Christ is an efficacious Savior because as God, He is omnipresent. Job says, I go forward, I go backward, to the right, to the left, and though I can't see Him, He is there. Job knows that wherever He is, He is in the presence of God. But Job also knows that the presence of God can be conceived of in two ways. First, because God is omnipresent, we are always before the face of God. But God's presence can also be considered in the way of His favor. The worst men cannot escape God's presence, but often the best men feel that they can't enter it. Job is speaking of God's presence in that second sense. We see it in all the negatives that he uses. I cannot perceive him. I cannot behold him. I cannot see him. Job does not, like the objectors in our catechism, deny God's presence because he can't be seen. Job's trial had obscured his sense of God's favor. Nevertheless, Job retained the knowledge that his omnipresent Redeemer was his advocate. You'll notice how he says in verse 6, Would he contend with me in his great power? No but he would take note of me. And in the Hebrew, that phrase literally reads, he would put strength into me. In other words, he would strengthen my case. And then in verse 7, he speaks of being delivered from God's judgment. Taken together, these statements teach the lesson of question 49, namely that Christ is ascended to heaven as our advocate. And this is a function of Christ's offices as our mediator. What are those offices again? Prophet, priest, and king. And Scripture consistently speaks of the ascended Christ promoting the welfare of His people by executing these three offices in heaven. So let's take some examples. As prophet, Christ as our prophet reveals God's will to us. The Old Testament prophets foreshadowed Christ in this activity. Now, in Ephesians 4, Paul begins by quoting from Psalm 68 that we read earlier, which read, He ascended on high, He led captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. Paul says this, He ascended? What does it mean but that He also first descended? Like, you can't ascend unless you've descended first, right? He continues, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the church. You see, he ascended and then gave gifts to his church. In his office as prophet, the ascended Christ reveals God's will to his people by supplying his church with preachers and teachers of Scripture. 
The office of pastor slash teacher is one way that Christ advocates for his people as their risen and ascended prophet. As priest, in Hebrews 7.25 we read, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now this is a reference to a specific task of the high priest. The priest's work consisted primarily of two parts. First, he offered sacrifice for the sins of the people. Then, he interceded for them on the merit of that sacrifice. Now, since Christ has offered himself as a sacrifice for us, we can be sure that this sacrifice will avail for us because Christ lives forever to intercede for us on the merit of that sacrifice. Right now, as we sit here this morning, Christ is pleading His own blood before the Father on our behalf. I wonder if you've ever considered that before. As king, well, the kings and judges of the Old Testament foreshadowed Christ by leading the armies out into battle against the foes of the church. Revelation 19.11 declares that Christ rides forth in righteousness, judging and making war. And that is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. Exodus 15.3 comes to mind. The Lord is a man of war. Psalm 45, verse 3, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. I've just been uh, reading 2 Samuel again, and something related to this point occurred to me the other day. God is sovereign. He overrules the intentions, the evil intentions of men for the sake of His own people. And this is true in two ways. A, when men fight against God's kingdom, He makes their plans serve His church. He that digs a pit, Solomon says, falls into it. Haman gets hanged on his own gallows. Joseph's brothers sell him into Egypt as a slave, but God sends him there to save the church from starvation. But secondly, God also overrules the sinful actions of well-intentioned men. And this is where the reference to 2 Samuel comes in. David is a foreshadowing of Christ. And yet his reign is beset by a lot of stupid and sinful actions of well-intentioned men. We have the murder of Abner, the assassination of Ishbosheth, and several other political intrigues. And yet God overruled these events in such a way that the kingdom benefited without being tainted by the sinfulness of the actions. God always made it abundantly clear that David had not authorized these actions, that they were evil, that the men responsible were punished, and yet David's kingdom grew by way of these actions. Now that fact remains true today. Christ overrules all things for the sake of his church. He sits on the throne of heaven overruling the affairs of men. Christ's scripture says is head over all things for the church. Psalm 76.10 reads, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. God told Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Pharaoh was the greatest king of his day. God raised that man up to the throne in order to destroy him for the sake of his people. And from one end of the Bible to the other, 
we find God's people triumphing over their enemies in ways that preclude them from taking any credit. Will Gideon take credit for destroying the entire Midianite army with 300 soldiers? Will Jonathan boast of routing the Philistines with just his armor bearer? Now, whether it be open opposition to the church by external or internal foes, or whether it just be plain stupid but well-intentioned behavior of our members, Christ overrules all for the benefit and well-being of His people. And even brute nature is bent by God to the service and benefit of His church. The Lord made the sun stand still in the sky until Israel had defeated her enemies. Joshua 10 verse 14 reads, There has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. The reformer John Calvin wrote, No matter how many strong enemies plot to overthrow the church, they do not have sufficient strength to prevail over God's immutable decree by which He appointed His Son, eternal King. Jesus, who made intercession for us here upon the earth, He's now our intercessor in heaven. And this is the most absolute evidence, the most Certain proof that our sins are forgiven in the death of Christ. Because he could never have entered the sanctuary in heaven to present himself to the Father unless he had made full satisfaction for our sins and obtained victory over death, sin, and the devil. In his ascension, Jesus led captivity captive, as it were. His ascension was a victory parade before all of creation. Now, in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, Paul asks, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ is in heaven right now where he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Christ's advocacy is two-layered. First, it's all that I've outlined above. He overrules all events, all plans, all plots, all schemes of sinners and saints for the growth and welfare of His church. But secondly, and more personally, He overrules all things for our sanctification. Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, wielding the scepter of His infinite power, defending us from our enemies, the most vicious of which is our own sinful nature. The process of sanctification, I frequently describe it like trying to walk up a down escalator. You walk and walk and walk and walk, and it doesn't seem like you make a whole lot of progress. And this would be a very disheartening fact were it not for two things. A, the righteousness that gets us into heaven isn't our own. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And B, Christ pleads that very righteousness before the Father on behalf of those for whom He died. When God grants us faith, He counts as ours the righteousness of Christ. Our catechism says, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. 
That truth is the only thing that alleviates the sorrow a saint feels at his paltry progress in personal holiness. God has ordained it this way. It is God's will that we struggle with our own sinfulness in order to keep this truth always before our eyes. Christ's ascension has deep ramifications for our personal sanctification. Christ as King rules over us, subdues us, and conquers all His and our enemies. And the chiefest of these enemies is our sinful nature. When we read the scripture and we see the staggeringly high standard of God's law, we are brought face to face with our own sinfulness. And this makes us more earnest in seeking forgiveness and in seeking righteousness only in Christ. It makes us more earnest in our prayers for the grace of God and in our desire to become more conformed to the image of Christ. The ascension is a promise that we will obtain moral perfection in the life to come. And if you can't rejoice over the prospect of never, 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 ever sinning again, you're dead where you stand. There is no greater prospect for the children of God. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Words of Paul in Romans 7. The second benefit we receive from Christ's ascension is that He, as very man, lives in heaven as head of His church. I don't think any of us fully appreciates what it means that our God has taken our nature and has so restored it that it can reside in the infinite glories and bliss of heaven. Paul calls it the eternal weight of glory. The fact that Jesus is in heaven is a promise that all who are united to Him by true faith will also reside in heaven. There is an actual human being physically living in heaven right now, our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is head of the church. Where the head is, the body must be too. He is in heaven, not because He's separate from us, but as our forerunner there. The church on earth is not decapitated by the ascension. We're not a body without a head. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Christ ascended to heaven as our head, and this proves that we, His members, shall one day follow Him. This is the promise that He made when He bid Mary tell the, His disciples, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. In Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20, we read the following. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. For indeed men swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. 
Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. In His physical presence in heaven, Jesus is our forerunner. In the ascension, we have these two immutable things. First, we have Jesus' bodily presence in heaven as a pledge that our resurrected bodies will ascend to heaven with Him. This was Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Jesus pleads the merit of His own sacrifice before the Father, that the Father honor His mediatorial work and bring to heaven all those for whom Christ died. That's the first immutable thing, Christ's bodily presence in heaven. The third immutable thing is our, the second immutable thing is our third point, the earnest. The second immutable thing is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the third fruit of His ascension. He sends His Spirit as a pledge between us. In other words, in addition to the presence of our flesh in heaven, He's also sent His Spirit from heaven to dwell in us. On the day of Pentecost, we read that the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they were, quote, filled with the Holy Ghost. We don't read that they were nicked by the Spirit or that the Spirit merely brushed up against them, but that they were filled. Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now that word Helper, which Jesus uses in reference to the Spirit, is the Greek word parakletos, which means an advocate, an intercessor, a consoler, a comforter, a helper. In John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will send you another parakletos. That is to say, you you see, to say, I'm going to send you another one implies that they had one when he was making that promise. It was himself. And that Greek word rendered another is a form of word that means another of the same thing. The indwelling Holy Spirit is to us what Jesus was to His disciples when He dwelt on earth. The advantage, of course, to us is that the Holy Spirit as God is omnipresent. Christ's human nature is not. And so we see the three persons of the Holy Trinity at work in our salvation. God the Father elects those whom He wills unto salvation. God the Son represents them in the covenant of grace by fulfilling all righteousness for them and dying to pay their debt of sin. The Holy Spirit applies the virtue of Christ's sacrifice to us, implants us into Christ, and dwells in us as an earnest of our full participation in the glory which Christ merited for us. Christ advocates for us before the Father in heaven, and the Holy Spirit advocates for us in our hearts. Romans 8.26 declares that on the basis of Christ's intercession in heaven, the Holy Spirit Himself makes intercession for us here on earth in our hearts. This was Job's hope. 
He understood that God's omnipresence meant that since God was his advocate, he would be delivered from judgment. He knew that his Redeemer lived, and therefore he would live and be forever with his Lord. Let us pray.